The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And it was very important to us that we give them an outlet. And so we had lots of great serious substantive debates on lawfare with a whole group of people that disagreed with us. And we thought that that was an important element of what we were trying to do, which to have, the only thing we insisted on was that the debates stay high-minded and not get personal. And I think we achieved that. And it was really an important part of the culture of the site early on. And I still think till today, much more so than any site like this I can think of, is that we did invite opposite perspectives. Lots of critics wanted to weigh in, and we gave them space to do so on the site. I'm David Priest, and this is a special episode of the Lawfare Podcast, September 13th, 2021. More than 11 years ago, Bobby Chesney, Jack Goldsmith, and Ben Wittes started a national security law blog called Lawfare, focused almost exclusively on issues related to the U.S. government's reaction to 9-11 and the reactions to those U.S. government policies and the legal justifications for them. In its early days, Lawfare was largely unknown to the general public outside of national security lawyers inside the U.S. government. Lawfare didn't even have a podcast. Jack and Ben joined me to talk through these origins of Lawfare, its intimate connection to 9-11 and its aftermath, and the importance of analyzing these issues at the intersection of national security, law, and policy. It's a special episode of the Lawfare Podcast, September 13th. Jack Goldsmith and Ben Wittes on Lawfare and September 11th. Jack, let me start with you at, you were present at the creation. So tell us about that creation. How do you remember the genesis of Lawfare in terms of your interactions with Ben and Bobby and what you decided to do? As I recall, it grew out of, at least in part, out of a email listserv that Bobby had where he was basically collecting and circulating to a group of lawyers and others, basically just every case that was every kind of war on terrorism case this was 9 this was 2010 or 2011 and bobby's listserv grew and grew and he would offer analysis for this and keep track of all the cases and and he discovered at some point that there were some a lot of justice department lawyers on this and then he discovered at some other point that he was actually providing a service to the government by collecting and organizing and commenting on these cases at the same time, as I recall, Ben and I, and maybe with Bobby at this point, had discussed starting a blog. As I recall, Ben was more enthusiastic for it than I was. I was afraid of 
you know, getting in the internet fray and having to write a lot and worried about how much of a distraction it would be. Um, and were you, then, let me, were you uh, at Harvard at the time? I was at Harvard. Okay. Yes, I'd been at Harvard. I'd left the government and come to Harvard. I've been there about five or six or seven years. And then as I recall it, I was at the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference in September of, um, I think it was 2010 or 2011, whatever the year was that the site started. And Justice Kennedy gave a speech in which he said in passing that his law clerks learn as much from blogs as they do from briefs. And I went into the next room and I called Ben and I said, I think we should do this. And then I believe, and Ben can correct me on all of this, I believe that we started the blog the next week. We just talked and threw it up and didn't think about it much. Ben, what did I get wrong? Uh, not much. Um, so uh, a little bit of additional background. Jack and I had written a bunch of stuff together, uh, and Bobby and I had written a bunch of stuff together, and Jack and Bobby had written a bunch of stuff together. And so there was this... Uh, you know, all of us had worked with all of us uh, on a set of post 9-11 issues that uh, were, and we can talk about the sort of issues that the site was initially oriented around, but there was a kind of a center of gravity of the three of us. Uh, we'd all co-authored stuff with each other. And then I, I think the 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 critical piece of background is that there were these sites, uh, particularly uh, the Volokh conspiracy and the uh, balkanization site that Marty Lederman was then writing for, that were just these kind of daily demonstrations that you could do, also SCOTUS blog, that you could do a kind of scholarship at the speed of journalism or a kind of hybrid scholarship journalism commentary. And I think we thought, and we were all kind of playing with this in different ways. Bobby's listserv was an example of that. And, um, and uh, Bobby and I had also been using uh, sort of writing a, uh, regularly updated kind of treatise on detention law that we would update every time there was a new uh, DC Circuit opinion. Um, and so we were all kind of playing with this form and uh, were very aware that there was, uh, I, I think, opportunities that were being, that we were missing by not having a daily outlet for something that was you know, not an op-ed, but also not a law review article. And uh, so, yeah, I started working on Jack uh, to do this, I want to say probably six, eight months before that Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference. And then he called me from the, you know, room adjacent to where Justice Kennedy had given this speech. And said, okay, I'm in, there are two rules. And I said, what are the two rules? And he said, you're never allowed to pressure me to post uh, and we will never accept comments. Uh, and those two rules have been, I think, with minor uh, uh, occasional deviations, uh, important guideposts of the site ever since that were, you know, were interested in 
not in content for content's sake, but in the stuff that people, you know, most are actively moved to write. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to our wonderful, illustrious readership, one of the presence, pre, uh, one of the premises of the site is that it's a voice of authority on which all voices are not created equal. So I think I think you're right there. We have not created a comment section that we are responsible for moderating. Uh, but I will apologize to Jack for the times in which I have been involved in pressuring him to contribute in one way or, or another and violating the first of but those I, rules. But I always felt free to say no in reliance on that rule. <laughs> um, and Bobby is not here. Uh, Bobby Chesney is not here to tell his version of the truth of the origin story. Um, but I think it is worth pointing out for something we skipped over for listeners that uh, Bobby Chesney, longtime professor at the University of Texas Law School, pairing with Ben, a longtime legal journalist and analyst of national security affairs, and Jack, and, and I want to build on this one little mini introduction, Jack, having come from government service in the Office of General Counsel at the Pentagon and the Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ, you it sounds like you were a bit surprised when you heard the justice say that he got input from blogs and his clerks would get input from blogs. It implies that, at least at the time you were in government, you were not getting such input for some of the legal decisions that you had to weigh in on. Is that right? That's correct. I don't, I was in the government in from 2002 to 2004. I don't, I just can't remember if blogs were a thing then. They surely were to some degree. I can't remember if balkanization had started by then or the Bolo conspiracy, but I certainly wasn't reading them if they were. And I was, I was aware by the time Justice Kennedy said that, I mean, uh, the Bolo conspiracy and balkanization were, there were hot places. There was great analysis going on there. They were covering the issues of the day. Uh, so I wasn't shocked when he said it, but it it kind of underscored the importance of this medium to communicating to the public. And so it helped me to get over my fear of, of going in this space. Mm-hmm. Ben, um, when, when Lawfare did finally begin based on that momentous phone call, there were several issues in the, the space that you were all rotating around and all writing together or separately on that had developed as a result in one way or another of 9-11 and the U.S. government's reaction to it. I'm wondering if you could describe the, the controversial aspects of the global war on terrorism that had emerged into the public view and were the core issues that Lawfare was focused on in those early months and years? Yeah, so I I think the moment that Lawfare started, which was September of 2010, was a particularly interesting moment in, in the history of the war on terror because it was, on the one hand, that the, the war on terror had been going on for almost a decade. And so there were not a lot of novel questions, right? It wasn't like 2002 where um, all of a sudden the Bush administration put on the table an enormous range of new issues that, you know, people hadn't had to think about before. 
Um, it was a moment in which people had expected the Obama administration, partly because of Obama's own rhetoric and partly just because of ginned up expectations on the part of uh, a lot of uh, liberal scholars and critics of the Bush administration, um, people really had expected the administration to come in and dismantle the broad legal architecture that the Bush administration had built. And uh, starting about six months into the administration, or maybe maybe less, maybe three months in, people started realizing that there was going to be a lot less change than they expected. And this caused a sudden renewal of this very bitter conversation that had taken place. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this, some of which was that the Bush administration had actually reined things in itself quite a lot, uh, starting in 2004 and 2005, but increasingly in the last two years of the administration. Um, but some of it was also that the Obama administration actually didn't want to break away from the idea of military counterterrorism on offense. And so we found ourselves both before and after Lawfare was created, um, kind of chronicling and kind of defending this uh, conservative uh, instinct on the part of the Obama administration. Um, and this was a very controversial set of issues that ranged from everything from the use of force uh, overseas against terrorism targets to the uh, spread of the war geographically and uh, to detention and military trials. I mean, it was a multifaceted set of arguments. Um, and I think a lot of the early lawfare uh, was spent in, in that broad set of subjects. Jack, let me ask you for your perspective on that. Because yes, Obama did come into office with this expectation that he was going to end the war approach on terrorism. And he announced right away upon taking office that he was going to close Guantanamo. Uh, interesting that it, if my math is right, it's now been twice as long since he said he was going to close Gitmo as it had been open when he made that statement. Um, but looking back, the Obama presidency was largely making the war on terrorism work in a way more efficiently instead of dismantling it. So in those early months and years of the Obama administration, how were you picturing the evolution of this national security consensus, if you will, across administrations on the war on terror? So I wrote a piece, I think it was in May of 2009, and it was called In the New Republic. And it was called, this was five, four or five months after Obama became president. And it was called the, the Cheney fallacy. And it was started with um, pres former Vice President Cheney criticizing President Obama for pushing back on all of the Bush programs and uh, counterterrorism programs. And I went through 10 or 11 or 12 areas and said quite the opposite. Obama is there's more continuity, much more continuity. Even you could tell that in April or May uh, of 2009, much more continuity. In fact, almost complete continuity. Even the 
the matter on which the Obama administration firmly shut the door, which is uh, CIA black sites and CIA interrogations and on abusive interrogations, those practices had been pushed back on by Congress in the 2005 Detainee Treatment Act and had basically ground to a halt as best we could tell by 2006. So it was it was pretty clear that that Obama, even early in his term, was not going to bring the radical change, at least had, had not by that point brought the radical change that people expected. But I think it's important to understand that it wasn't just a decision by Obama. The thing that became apparent as we started lawfare in um, the next year was that a lot of the matters had been settled the way they were supposed to have been settled before Obama became president. But by the end of the Bush administration, by January of 2009, the country, the political system, Congress and the courts and internal executive branch actors like inspectors general and the like had engaged with the early Bush administration policies on issues ranging from military commissions to expect to to harsh interrogations, to the whole array of issues actually in the war on terrorism, Gitmo, I'll just give you a few examples, and let me make the point, and then I'll give some examples. The political branches in the courts had engaged during the Bush administration and caused Bush to change the nature of what he's doing, forced him to get legislative approval, forced him to push back, forced him to be subject to habeas corpus and the like. So, and this was the these were the set of institutions that Obama inherited. So there was actually more of a legal and policy consensus by the time Obama came in than people realized. And let me just give two or three examples. Um, the Hamdan case rejected Bush's uh, original military commission scheme, but did not declare them always and forever un- illegal. And so Congress quickly, a couple of times, both uh, in the Bush and in the Obama administration, gave them a sounder legal footing. Now, military commissions have not worked well, but that was an example of why something that Obama continued because there had been change during Bush. The, As I said earlier, the, um, as I alluded to earlier, the Detainee Treatment Act of 2005 and um, the Hamdan case, and I think that was in 2006, basically established the end, put down legal prohibitions that that required the end of the CIA aggressive interrogation techniques long before Obama came into office. The And the last example I'll use, and there are many others, the Boumediene case in 2008, which actually established that the, uh, the, the detainees in Getmo had a constitutional right to habeas corpus relief, that right was available, and it ended up happening under the Obama administration that the detainees had full litigation of their of their um, of their rights and whether they had could be properly detained in Gitmo or not. And the courts blessed it. So, the general point I would make is that Obama there was continuity under Obama, more continuity than people expected. But the reason for that was because the political and legal system engaged with Bush's counterterrorism policies throughout his first two terms and. It just looked a lot different and was on a lot sounder foundation by the end of his term than it was at the dawn of 9-11. So in those early years, then, a lot of the writing on lawfare, if you look back at the posts, they were they were often shorter, but n- not always. But they were often highlighting some of these very issues you're, you're talking about, some of the continuity, the impact of some of these decisions. And it seemed to be largely around the purpose of writing and almost defending these elements that were the continuity of the global war on terror. 
And one effect of that, as Ben has already hinted at, is that lawfare back then was generally associated with the more conservative end of the political spectrum, the more hawkish point of view on the war on terror, finding ways that this is okay in the system. Ben, how how conscious of that were you as you were kind of taking the lead on bringing in contributors and building out the site throughout the Obama administration? And how much did that affect your relationships, not only with Jack and Bobby, but with some of the people who had first come to the site for some of that legal insight? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And it has uh, a very complicated answer. So in the site's early days, we were extremely conscious of the fact that it was, we were uh, not the, 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 the hard right of the conversation, um, because, you know, we were never part of the sort of executive power, uh, uberalis, uh, crowd, the, the, the people around uh, the former vice president, et cetera. Uh, so there was all, but we were, I think it's fair to say the right side of the, uh, the, the sort of mainstream component of the conversation. And this meant that there were, uh, we were constantly in dialogue slash argument with the human rights community um and um i think they you know that was sometimes uh very friendly uh you know it is actually the origins of my uh long standing uh and very warm relationship with now congressman tom malinowski was he used to write stuff arguing with us uh and we would publish it on lawfare um so there was a you know, and and certain people associate well, our first outside contributor, who we kind of brought in, was Steve Vladek, uh, and we brought him in because he was sort of from uh, that more uh, uh, liberal world, and we thought it would be interesting to you know have him in the tent uh, for, um, and. So there was, you know, we were very conscious of that there was a political center of gravity, at least on the, I mean, we never talked about other issues that were, it wasn't a partisan thing, but there was a political center of gravity to it. And it was, I would say, gently right of center. And um, and in the public sphere, that uh, meant that it had a lot of left antagonists. The irony of it, of course, was that its principal audience were the lawyers of the Obama administration, uh, whose policies it was mostly defending, and at, you know, the, at least the lawfulness of whose policies it was mostly defending. And so it had this weird uh, valence of um, a uh, a kind of right of center in the public arena whose major constituency were left of center lawyers uh, at the very senior levels of the Obama administration. And so as those people came out of government, uh, many of them ended up writing for lawfare. And that's how people like Bob Bauer and Lisa Monaco, you know, came to be, uh, you know, 
sometimes occasional, sometimes in, as in Bob's case, very frequent contributors to lawfare because they're people who used it when they were in government. Can I add something there, David? I just want to underscore one thing Ben said about the early philosophy of the site. A couple of things. We didn't, we did have, as Ben said, a kind of slightly right of center sensibility. But again, as Ben said, only what that meant was we were largely supportive of the the Obama administration's approach to the war on terrorism. But he said something else that I want to underscore because it was an important part of the philosophy of the site. And that is, we were aware that we had a particular perspective, nothing that we, you know, we didn't adopt it self-consciously. We just had a a common outlook on these issues, largely common outlook on these issues, and that it, it and that in the aggregate it gave the site a particular perspective. And we had lots of critics early on, and it was very important to us that we give them an outlet. And so we had lots of great, serious, substantive debates on lawfare with a whole group of people that disagreed with us. And we thought that that was an important element of what we were trying to do, which to have the only thing we insisted on was that the debates stay high-minded and not get personal. And I think we achieved that. And it was really an important part of the culture of the site early on. And I still think till today, much more so than any site like this I can think of, is that we did invite opposite perspectives. Lots of critics wanted to weigh in and we gave them space to do so on the site. Yeah, I just want to expand on this point because its uh, I think it's a really critical component of what makes lawfare different from other sites. When when we started the site, it was very much a personal blog of the three of us. And, you know, we very quickly realized that it was not, uh, you know, that it was capturing a, a lot of mindshare in, in the national security community. And so we started to grow it. And as we grew it, uh, it was very important to us to diversify the philosophical base of the contributors. Um, ben, do you recall the first post from someone other than Bobby, Jack, or you, who that was and what it was about? Well, it would have been either Steve Vladek or Larkin Reynolds. Um, uh, I think the first person, the first scholar we asked to join the site was Steve Vladek, and he was definitely, you know, very self-consciously there to, you know, argue with us and 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 be, uh, you know, come to the questions from from a very different perspective. And um, as Jack says, we made a point of publishing our critics, which we originally did mostly by having them write letters, and we would just post them. But eventually, as the site grew, we you know, uh, we were, you know, able to, you know, it became much more of a magazine. And, you know, the difference between running a blog and running a magazine is that um, a, a blog is very personal, you know, and it's, it's how I feel this day. And, you know, it's, there are some posts that are one sentence long, right? And a magazine, you really, particularly one that's going to be a kind of voice of the field, you actually want it to represent the diversity of serious thought within the field. And so as we grew, it moved very much away from that original sensibility of, you know, this is our space in which to 
uh, kind of defend our points of view on a series of contested questions. I want to pick up on two things that are kind of under the surface so far in the conversation. Uh, I'll direct the first one to Jack and then Ben come back to you for the second. The first is that we, we have implied, but I think left unstated in this chat, that Lawfare does not have a, a set editorial policy. That is, writers contributing are not fitting some Lawfare editorial line that the opinions expressed are the opinions of the contributors. Uh, first of all, Jack, is that your understanding? And was that understanding made clear to everyone contributing such that that is why people from Steve and many others wanted to jump in and contribute? Ben can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that there is no editorial outlook of the of the site. There is no single outlook of the site. The only thing that we, the only two things that I recall we've ever insisted on and we've looked for are high quality and high minded argument as opposed to you know, overly personalized uh, argument. We really tried to, we really try, we don't necessarily always succeed, but we've really tried from the beginning to focus on arguments and not uh, on extraneous stuff that sometimes happens online. And the second, and the second thing we look for is quality. So, we, and if someone can make a great argument, we have been very broad-minded in in who we, I think, and who we allow on the site. And so, those are the two main kind of um, editorial uh, points of insistence. Did I leave anything out, Ben? No, I think the only strong editorial points are other than the ones that. Jack just identified is that there are substantive coverage areas that we have made a decision we don't do. So, for example, when the entire world becomes, you know, obsessed with discussing the details of Amy Coney Barrett's record as a scholar and an appellate judge, we don't write about judicial nominations. Um, and so that means there are parts of the conversation that we just don't participate in. And that is a strong editorial point of view, but it's mostly in the negative sense. So we made a decision years ago that we cover judicial nominations only insofar as there are is a national security matter to discuss in relation to a particular nominee, like, for example, Merrick Garland's or Brett Kavanaugh's writings on the D.C. Circuit on our issues. Um, but, yeah, there's no political or, you know, substantive guide rails of lawfare writing. My view is we should be a very big tent uh, philosophically. Uh, we should be a big tent methodologically. And uh, we should be, and, you know, no, nobody should confuse any writers, particularly not mine, uh, views with an institutional view of the site. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Early in the blog's life, the audience was perceived to be, and I think in reality largely was, for a, a very small, defined number of people. And without naming names, but describing the kinds of positions these people were in, who were you imagining were the, for lack of a better word, the customers, the, the, the frequent readers of Lawfare were people who were doing what? Yeah, I will actually, I will name names on this. Um, um, because when when we sat down to sort of think about what the site was going to be, um, there were actually three names of people who we wanted the site to be useful to. And so one of them was Elena Kagan, who was then the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, not the Supreme Court Justice Kagan. And uh, the Solicitor General's office was running uh, all the Guantanamo litigation uh, at a certain level of, of oversight. And all of this was happening in the D.C. Circuit. And so we thought, you know, up and down the chain from the line lawyer to the Solicitor General, the people who were thinking about Guantanamo litigation in the executive branch, as well as in the courts and in the de de defense bar, uh, should all be reading Lawfare all the time. So that was group number one. Group number two was uh, um, uh, typified by, and again, all of this was very explicit, like these, you know, if we're not reaching Elena Kagan and Jay Johnson, we're not doing our job. Jay Johnson was then not yet Homeland Security Director. All these people are more famous for what they did later. He was the general counsel of the Defense Department. And he was also not just supervising, you know, in, a, in an ultimate sense, a bunch of litigations, but he was doing legal review of drone strikes. And, um, and we thought, you know, the people in that office, including the, you know, the, the, the um, the uh, uh, general counsel of DOD, we should be a resource for them. And one of my proudest early moments for from Lawfare was when I got a sudden distress email from a forward deployed JAG in Iraq. A base commander had uh, errantly blocked access to Lawfare and this uh, Jag, who was using us for, uh, for you know, guidance on operational matters. Uh, I think particularly a lot of stuff that Bobby was writing. Uh, you know, 
uh, wrote to me like, what can I do? How can I access Lawfare? And we uh, we managed to convince the the base commander to lift the lift the the block on Lawfare. Did on you ever that. find out the reason why? What the the reason for the block was? Never did. Oh. Um, I think it was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the final uh, example was uh, a, a friend of Jack and mine who was a line lawyer at CIA, whom I will not name, who, um, uh, you know, was involved in a lot of interesting stuff. And we thought, you know, we should be, so this is a non-political appointee. Uh, we should be useful to him and lots of other people like him. And that, I, I think those were the three, uh, you know, initial categories, and they really do have names attached to them. But to be clear, we weren't we weren't kind of feeding these people information. We were these were imagined audiences that we wanted to reach, and that whom we were writing for. In part, is that right, Ben? Yes, very much so. There was no. There was no. Um, it, it was. These are the people who, if a lawfare is effective, these are the type of people who would uh, use it all the time and that there is no public resource available uh, for people like that. And this, these, are, these are markets that we can serve. And Ben, you should talk, you mentioned um, the courts, but I think... That was more of an audience at the time, even than you suggested. You used to actually go and cover and analyze oral arguments and re- review briefs. And I think that the courts, especially during all the Guantanamo habeas litigation that you and Bobby were tracking so closely at the time, I think that was, that was you mentioned them in passing, but I think that was a, a major audience as well. It was. And, you know, in the early days of the site, the, the Guantanamo litigation was a huge part of what the D.C. Circuit was doing. And this was a subject that, you know, again, at a sub, the, the whole first decade of the post 9-11 era was devoted to the question of whether there was jurisdiction to hear these cases. And that was not decided until 2008. And so this period from 2000, kind of then it takes a little while for the cases to kind of heat up. And in this period, 2010, 2011, there is just case after case that makes its way through the D.C. Circuit, and they really just rewrote the law of detention. And I, I, I think that was probably the body of my writing in that period of time and, and Bobby's as well. And so, you know, a huge amount of like, whereas lawfare is now quite diverse in its in its subject matter in this period of time it really was overwhelmingly about the law of counterterrorism and that's an important note here is that the time frame we're talking about certainly the first term of the obama administration and i would say into the second term the overwhelming majority of the issues being addressed in lawfare going back and skimming through them you see all kinds of things about the detention, interrogation, and black site program, the military detentions at Guantanamo, the Bush era positions on habeas corpus, military commissions, targeted killings, the state secrets doctrine, so many things that 
were significantly connected to September 11th. And reflecting now 20 years after 9-11, it is, it is amazing that writing for that audience, specifically for people who were you know, but lawyers in the U.S. government working on some of these thorny, hard national security choices started to, in a sense, spread out. And I, I recall it sometime, probably 2014, maybe 2015, I became aware of lawfare and I am not a lawyer. My, my CIA background had me interested in these topics and I was getting insight and analysis that I wasn't seeing anywhere else on these issues, but it was still very much uh, down downriver from 9-11 itself. But that did change. And it changed with things like Edward Snowden or with cybersecurity issues. And I'm wondering, Ben, even before Donald Trump took office, were you conscious of this expansion of both the audience of lawfare and in an interrelated way, an expansion of the topics being addressed to wider national security concerns than just those raised directly by 9-11? So it's a really interesting question. And I would love to say that we were super conscious and super deliberative and super strategic about it. Um, but the truth of the matter is that I think uh, there was a lot of groping our way to the reality um, some of it for, for you mentioned cybersecurity. So Jack's interest in cybersecurity dates back to the early period of the site. And I think we all always had in mind that as cybersecurity became uh, was a growth field and would be a growth field for the site. I think it may be mentioned in the original lawfare post, though I would have to check that. So I I do think that there's a like with respect to cyber cybersecurity was I think the one non 9/11 matter that was sort of very much on our minds from the beginning, along with perhaps the alien tort statute, which was just a an area that Jack had done a lot of writing in that was completely unconnected. Um, the other things, so Snowden was, I think, a very big change for the site, though a lot of the programs he was uh, uh, blowing were had counterterrorism elements and had exploded during the 9-11 period. The truth of the matter was that most of this, the, the NSA issues associated with Snowden were really not post 9/11 issues. They were uh, they were growth of technology and telecommunications infrastructure and platform surveillance issues. And I think that was really the first time that we really spent an intense amount of energy on a on a set of questions that was not uh, an immediate immediate sort of derivative of 9-11. Um, there were certainly before Trump serious questions about whether we should, how, whether and how much we should expand our focus. We had real questions, discussions about climate change. Uh, there were a bunch of China questions that are not quite cybersecurity questions, right? But I do think it was the issues around 
the candidacy of Trump, uh, that kind of blew the lid off of the post 9-11 qualities of lawfare. Jack, let me ask for your perspective on that, both at the the end of the Obama administration with the the expansion of some of these things into, as Ben mentioned, even climate change, but then with the candidacy and especially with the election of Donald Trump, the site had had a, a quick turn, if you will. It had a turn into topics of rule of law as they connected to a wider conception of national security. And it also had a turn where the audience, perhaps not consciously, but the, the audience was no longer primarily national security lawyers working anonymously to most of the American public in the machinery of the national security bureaucracy. But suddenly, lawfare is being cited on MSNBC and CNN and Fox News primetime. Um, how did you see that relatively quick and dramatic change that happened in 2016? So we had... I, I want to emphasize that the site's topics, the topics of coverage had been expanding before Trump came into office. We actually had written about rule of law issues as re they related to national security and presidential power. But I think we were we were growing beyond the original counterterrorism categories. But there's no doubt that Trump becoming president caused a dramatic change in direction for the site. And I want to emphasize, and we had a discussion about this, I think it was the day after the election, um, that it was a decision of individuals who were writing. There was no editorial decision that we're going to move in this direction, or it was a decision as it always is, largely always is, of, of what were the right people writing for lawfare interested in. Everybody was interested in Trump. And you're right, the writings kind of explaining, and we, our site, I think, is very good at taking technical legal issues and translating them for various audiences, including a general audience that became much more interested than before in rule of law, presidential power issues, and the like. And so very suddenly, we had a, a different focus and a much broader audience. And again, we were being cited in various places even before Trump came into office. But Ben can speak to this better than I can. I think our audience just exploded during during uh, the Trump years. That is certainly true. And it also changed character. It became a, uh, not because the core audience diminished, but because the new audience was so large. Um, this was a... Uh, a different group of people uh, from the traditional readers of the site. They were they tended to be uh, non-lawyers or at least not national security lawyers. They tended to be uh, in just interested members of the general public rather than people with, you know, a discrete professional interest in the subjects that Lawfare covered. Uh, they tended to be very committed to the podcast. Uh, which uh, explains the, you know, largely explains the explosive growth of the podcast over the last few years. And they tended to be uh, people who uh, uh, did not have a, an especially strong set of uh, instincts about the issues on which the site had been uh, had driven the site in the past. That is, they weren't there for for post 9-11 counterterrorism questions. 
and probably in many of cases wouldn't have agreed with our sort of particular sensibility on a lot of those questions. They were there to uh, understand the issues of counterintelligence, of of you know criminal law, of rule of law and separation of powers that the various uh, uh, Trump issues presented. And so it was a it was a very different type of writing uh, for often a very different audience. Jack, I'm going to get into the realm of feelings here. How how did that make you feel that suddenly there was this perception in some corners that lawfare was political, or at least it was being cited in political discussions, not purely national security discussions? My honest view is I hated it. Um, I didn't like the, I don't think the site became in any, again, any kind of editorially led way, more political, but our writers engaged the most salient political issues of the day because they all um, gathered around the Trump administration, the Mueller investigation, the counterterrorism issues, excuse me, the counterintelligence issues and the like. And we tried very hard to maintain uh, our commitment to balance and the other side. We did to some degree. I think we actually did, despite our sort of basic orientation as being critical of the Trump administration. I wrote quite a few pieces that in various ways defended some things the Trump administration was doing and was pretty roundly criticized, but I thought it was important that the site, and Ben did too, that the site still reflect all perspectives. Josh Blackman wrote some great pieces on the site defending uh, elements of what the Trump administration was doing. The truth is it was hard to find balanced commentary during the Trump years, and we were perceived as having um, a kind of anti-Trump bias, probably, uh, and I and we were perceived as being more political for a whole bunch of reasons. And I certainly didn't like that, but I also couldn't find fault in anything we were doing because we were basically doing what we always did, allowing our writers to engage on the issues they wanted with integrity and excellence. And um, so that's what we did. And that's the way it appeared. It always seemed to me, and I, I think I ended up using words similar to these at one point to defending that very point that, you know, accusing lawfare of being political during that period by writing uh, objective analysis of these rule of law and related issues is like saying that an umpire in baseball is being biased if they don't call pitches outside the strike zone, um, if they don't call them that way, uh, that there must be a certain number of strikes. But if the pitcher is consistently delivering pitches outside the strike zone, the umpire who is objectively analyzing the pitches is is not biased politically against the pitcher by by calling them as balls instead of strikes. And I think that analogy is hard in a highly politicized, a highly partisan environment, but the, the analysis stands to this day. You can look back at the analysis over the, the lifetime of the blog and see that it comes from that insightful perspective. We want to illuminate an issue here rather than to advocate for a political point of view. And yet there was a greater diversity here. We've talked about the diversity of topics moving beyond core 9-11 topics. We've talked about the diversity of um, perspectives being brought in with new contributors. 
Um, but Ben, can you talk about the other aspect of diversity, which is that Lawfare started out with three white men from a very similar background, but by the point we're talking about, by the Trump administration, you had not only significant you know, numbers of women helping to run the site, but you had a very diverse set of contributors well beyond what you would have envisioned back in 2010. Yeah, so I just one one note on philosophical diversity. Um, you know, I think on the post 9-11 issues that the site was originally constructed around, there is no more diverse place in American letters than lawfare. And, you know, we had uh, a range of from you know, quite conservative to quite liberal writers. We had people from uh, who had really tangled with one another in government. Um, we had, you know, a, I thought, it, you know, we, we, and we designed it that way, you know, that it was, uh, we wanted people who were excellent from very different points of view and who would be civilized with one another. And you know, I, you, we used to congratulate ourselves um, that that we had really accomplished that. And the irony is that that turned out to be a very bad predictor of diversity in the Trump era. And so, you know, some of our uh, conservative writers uh, were among the most ferocious uh, anti-Trump writers on the site. Um, and some of our liberal writers were, uh, uh, you know, a little bit less, uh, you know, uh, a, a little bit less so. And so the, the, the irony is that philosophical diversity in one era or in one period around a particular set of questions like post 9-11 counterterrorism ends up being a very bad predictor of philosophical diversity on other issues where I, there was a lot of agreement as well as some disagreement among lawfare writers. Um, on other diversity, yeah, so when we started the site, um, we were sometimes accused by prominent people of being an old boys club. Uh, and I have to say, I found that very offensive. Um, uh, I thought of Lawfare as, you know, Lawfare was a, a personal blog that represented three people who had all written together a lot and had a, a, a close philosophical core that, as well as being close personal friends. And I don't think of my personal writing or let alone, I don't presume to think about how, how to define Jack or Bobby's personal writing, but I never thought of that as something that required diversity. Um, and um, I feel completely different about it as the site started to grow. And, you know, once you make the decision, hey, wait a minute, we're capturing a lot of eyeballs here and a lot of minds that are reading this and we want to grow it, then you have to think about how to represent the diversity of the field in a way that you don't and frankly shouldn't have to when it's you and a couple buddies doing some writing together. Um, and uh, we made a commitment very early on 
to developing uh, a cadre of young writers. And uh, we did that through a number of means, both uh, getting student contributors to, to write for the site um, and also through hiring as we began to, to, to actually grow the institutional infrastructure of the site. And in that, we were very attentive to uh, uh, particularly gender diversity. We wanted to cultivate uh, a group of female writers in, in, in the space. Um, uh, and I think we've been, I hope we've been very successful in that. We've been obviously uh, been less successful candidly with uh, racial diversity, um, but I do think we have been uh, effective at really creating creating channels in which uh, young female writers in the in the field uh, can break in. A last topic uh, for today, and to bring it back around to the September 11th theme of of everything in the last few days, whereas lawfare was once primarily, almost exclusively, about the the legal legacy of September 11th. Now, there will be days when you look at the contributions on lawfare, and it's about intelligence and immigration and domestic terrorism and disinformation and climate change and health policy. And you might not see that much directly related to September 11th and the issues it directly raised at the center of this this diagram of national security law and policy. And yet there are some that are still there. Um, Jack and, and then Ben, I would like you to close with what you think Lawfare will continue to shine the light on in the coming years that are still the outstanding issues, if you will, in the legal and policy communities about the U.S. government's response to terrorism after 9-11. Jack. Basically, lawfare has gone where the issues have gone, and I think we'll continue to do that. We were heavily focused on habeas corpus and Guantanamo litigation early on because that was a very important issue. If we're going to see habeas corpus, corpus litigation and Guantanamo litigation growing out of the ostensible end of military presence in Afghanistan, we will cover it again. I think it's fair to say that we we cover the counterterrorism issues when they become salient and important. And we may be at an inflection point now with President Biden talking about uh, ending the so-called forever war. I don't think that that's accurate or even possible at this point. But there's definitely, we do seem to be at a change where it changed because Congress seems more interested in engaging, at least a little bit more interested in engaging on these war issues. So my prediction is, is that we will cover them as they become more salient and important and less settled. Right now, or at least until recently, the vast majority of these issues have been settled and not on the front page or even on page 14 of the newspaper. And with exceptional kind of kind of specialized reporting in these areas where we, we could do some deeper reporting, we just haven't been writing about it because it hasn't been salient, but we will when it becomes more salient. Ben, um, what, what topics, what areas that are still direct descendants of 9-11 are going to be major areas of focus in the coming months and years on lawfare? Two things need to happen for something to be a, a meaty issue for lawfare. Uh, 
it has to be in some broad sense, a national security issue. And there are some questions about what the margins of those issues are, but there's, you know, it has to threaten to kill people basically, or otherwise damage U.S. national security. And it has to be sufficiently unsettled in its contours that there are significant legal questions about how to address it. Um, one of the accomplishments of the post 9-11 era was to settle a lot of those questions. Uh, there are significant outstanding questions that have not been settled, particularly the uh, what to finally do with the 9-11 conspirators given the broad failure of military commissions to, to get off the ground. Uh, there are some others, um, but mostly the architecture of post 9-11 counterterrorism is reasonably well settled. Um, I do think Jack's point that, you know, what the landscape of armed conflict looks like after the Afghanistan withdrawal is going to make, have some significant legal components to it. Uh, Those are going to take a while to develop. Um, But I mostly think that the, the legal landscape of counterterrorism right now is pretty well defined. And uh, that is one of the reasons why lawfare spends the bulk of its time on other questions right now. You know, when I look around and say, hey, what should I write about? The question of what the legal regime for ransomware should be is actually much more interesting and much more unsettled and actually affects a lot more people right now than the U.S. legal regime for most terrorism crimes and so, or terrorism issues. And so I, I don't think we will, have, we will never turn our back on the 9-11 legal legacy because it, it is, uh, it continues to be a very rich source of subjects. But, you know, 20 years in, it is not nearly as contested as it was uh, even seven or eight years ago, uh, let alone at the time the site was founded. Mm -hmm. Jack and Ben, uh, thank you for giving us this set of reflections on Lawfare. Thank you both for bringing me into the Lawfare family. And most of all, thanks for joining us today to talk about it all. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Don't forget to share the podcast, rate the podcast, tweet about the podcast, put posts on Facebook about the podcasts, help us spread the word however you can. This episode is edited by our audio engineer, Ian Enright. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.